0: Well, now that I'm on, um, like I said, we did a lot of kings uh, last week. We got through the bulk of Judah's kings, Judah, the southern kingdom of the split kingdoms of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. We're going to um, finish off, you might say, Judah this week, and we're going to see them taken away into captivity, into uh, Babylon. I've tried to keep it a little more brief with... um, some of the names um, to just make it a little easier to get through. Um, I remember last week we got to King Uzziah, a familiar name um, from some of the more famous um, prophecies of Isaiah. And uh, today we'll start with uh, Jotham. So we're in 1 Kings 15. And we'll move through this with some uh, rapidity because I would like to get to... um, Uh, some of the stuff surrounding um, the deportation, the exile of uh, Judah into Babylon. Jotham, remember, um, Jotham takes over for his father early, okay? Um, Because his father, remember, in a moment of sort of... um, in a moment of pride or in a moment of um, inappropriate um, self-assuredness, enters the part of the temple he's not supposed to, to perform an act that was to be reserved for priests, and remember, he was struck with leprosy. So Jotham assumes the throne. He reigns. um, He serves as almost... um, He he, he governs in place of the um, sick king, and then he himself takes over and reigns for 16 years. He does what's right in the eyes of the Lord, but we still have these pagan sacrifices happening throughout the land. We've talked about those some already. Um, he makes some improvements on the temple, and he dies. Jotham's son Ahaz reigns next for 16 years over Judah. And if you guys remember back, remember I said there was a point whereby there was actually intermarriage between the, the royal family of the northern kingdom and the royal family of the southern kingdom. We talked about the good and the bad that could come from something like that. So we have the northern kingdom, Israel, which throughout its... is always, it seems, racked with, with bad kings and, and horrible apostasy and these kinds of things. Um, and now we have a marriage alliance that's formed with Judah at one point in time. And it seems, remember Ahab... The most infamous, perhaps the most wicked king in the in the northern kingdom. Um, we see his influence now in the southern kingdom, and we see that Ahaz, the king of Judah, it's scripture records he walks in the evil ways of the kings of Israel. Okay, so now it's almost like they're importing some of this evil from the north. So we have a good king, and now we have a bad king, Ahaz along with seemingly importing some of the um, evil practices from the north, he also walks in the ways of the pagans who had lived in the land. The sacrifices on the high places increase, and he reaches what we're going to consider a new depth of depravity. He actually burns his own son as as an offering. So we see this This is the downward spiral. We're headed for Babylon, and, and, and here is how we're going to get there. Um, so Ahaz is now king in Judah. We have horrible evil happening now. Um, and we're going to talk more about why such a thing would happen. I have some thoughts on that, but first let's just quickly get through the narrative here. Ahaz um, also in a moment of desperation because he's being attacked by the king of Syria and the king of Israel itself. Um, he sends messengers to the king of Assyria. He asks for aid. He, he takes um, gold from the temple and silver from the temple and sends it. And he just, he's in sort of self-preservation mode. Okay, We know that Judah is not as powerful as it once had been, but it still possesses some wealth. Um, he sends that away. And he is able to persuade the king of Assyria to sort of form an alliance with him. The king of Assyria attacks and um, for the moment. Judah is spared, and Ahaz continues in his evil ways, even modifies the temple to resemble an altar that he has seen while visiting Damascus. So now we have pagan altars um, being built in and around God's temple. And then we get to Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a big part of our story today. Um, Hezekiah is Ahaz's son. He assumes the throne over Judah and will reign for a long reign, 29 years. Hezekiah is presented in a very interesting way. Um, he is compared, we're in 2 Kings 18 now, if you're following along. He's compared, his very, um, compared to King David. He's called righteous. Um, and he's compared to King David in ways that no other king of Judah is. So we have this Horrific king Ahaz, and then after this we have Hezekiah, says of Hezekiah in 2 Kings 18, 1-3, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. So we really have, um, this is one of the last really strong good kings of Judah, but Hezekiah even more so. He does He does things that even the other good kings before him hadn't done. Um, he really surpasses them in his righteous zeal. He tears down the high places so there's no more pagan statues. He stops the pagan sacrifices. Um, he even breaks apart Moses' bronze serpent. Now, why in the world would he have to do that? Do you guys remember from Numbers 21? As, mar- as Israel's marching through the desert, they're complaining. That happened a lot. But this specific time, they're complaining. And as a punishment, God sent serpents among them. And biting them, and Moses made this bronze serpent on a pole, and the people looked at the pole. They were saved. Remember that? They looked at this bronze serpent. Well, why in the world would righteous Hezekiah want to tear, you know, tear apart, break apart this bronze serpent? Well, because the people had started to worship it. I know, right? And truly, we have to ask ourselves at this point is there anything shiny the people of Israel haven't bowed down to? What is it about pagan religion and idol worship? that's still so alluring? We have to ask ourselves this. At some point, this story begins to sound like a broken record. They're still so attracted to these these pagan customs that were in the land, these high places, these Asherah poles. a, A symbol, a serpent crafted to save them from their grumblings now becomes an object of worship. What is it pagan worship. Why? Surely by now, Judah has seen enough they know better. Why? I have some thoughts on this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Lee.
1: Well, I had one thought about Hezekiah, why he turned out to be a good king, because he probably saw his brother being burned alive at some point and that might have made him think hmm maybe that's not a good religion for me to follow so that was one thought but the thing is is i mean we do it still today we don't call them idols but it's like anything but god it's like anything but god and we they were looking for anything but god in the same way that we are today often
0: and it's just i agree i think it's just sad to see such desperation to find something else, that they would even turn a symbol like Moses' serpent. If there was any lesson from that, it's don't complain, but God saved you anyway, right? And instead, now they're worshiping this thing. Um, I have. I want to read really quickly here um, what will, from the excellent commentary on the Second Kings by Dale Ralph Davis, a thought about pagan worship. Um, because remember, these things are written for our instruction. So if we read it and we're all just like, oh gosh, those those ancient people, they were so primitive, they were so stupid, we would never do such a thing. Um, I would like to read a section to you here that I think speaks to us about, in a way that might connect with us better, help us connect with the text better. So pagan religion creates what it likes. Biblical faith receives what is revealed. Pagans worship based on what they prefer. Biblicists must worship based on what God desires. The biblical worshiper must submit. The pagan worshiper may concoct. Pagan worship is a chance to choose, be right with you, question in the back, is a chance to choose what you will worship, what you will desire what you will long after what what gives you fulfillment right what will you worship what my heart desires and if i can't find something i'll make something okay and i have a lot of freedom to come up with something that fits me our faith biblical faith is nothing like that is that there is a god and he's revealed what you have to know and you owe him obedience that's very different so I think that's a passage when I read kind of helped me connect with this. Why? Why the pagan worship? What's well, the chance to choose? You get to pick and choose which one of these deities you're going to serve? I don't know one or two or three of them. Whatever, serve you know whatever suits me. You know, then maybe I'll make up a new one while I'm at it. It's so I think when we see this again and and Hezekiah, this righteous king, um, working to smash this influence, to rid the land of this influence. I completely agree with what you said, Lee. If nothing else, he'd seen a perfect negative example, okay, right before him. And um, so anyway, sorry, question in the back. Yes.
1: I have a couple questions, actually. And I was wondering, why did the king gave lashes to the um, brother? Um. Judah, or what is his name?
0: I'm not sure which king you're on there, Bennett.
1: I'm talking about Asher, uh, Ah, Thank you.
0: you. You mean why? Why did he perform the sacrifice?
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: Well, we'll talk about this some more here in a minute because we're going to see it, unfortunately, happen again. But um, is a pagan custom. We've seen in the in both the Near East, I believe, uh, Northern Africa, um, there is historical um, historical precedent for this sort of thing. Um, it's based on sort of a uh, how do I coerce God to make Him do what I want Him to do, and the greater the sacrifice I can offer Him, the greater value, the more likely He is get him to, him to obey. you do what
1: you want. You you yes, you to do.
0: and the idea. Exactly. And the idea would be by offering something that to me is so precious as a sacrifice to God that I will get him to do what I want. Does that make sense? It's a very it's a very pagan
1: custom.
0: Yes, that is correct. And we know one thing about God. He has God as a father. We have God the Father and God the Son. And we will see that um, this is one of the issues that ultimately will drive God to cast out Judah. But we'll get to that. That's an excellent setup question. Thank you. Um, so moving on here, we've kind of talked about idols and why there's you know idolatry and idol worship, why it's so alluring. And and we talked about how among the Davidic kings Hezekiah is most like David. There are even phrases in the text that are only used of him and of David, such as, the Lord was with him, and he was successful in war. I think that's really fascinating because it's just showing this direct connection um, because only David and Hezekiah among the Davidic kings are written of in such a way. And Hezekiah is also very unlike his father. Remember, his father made an alliance with Assyria to save himself. He even calls himself a servant of the king of Assyria when he's begging for help. Not so for Hezekiah. In fact, he rebels against the Assyrians. So, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes and takes by force many of the fortified cities of Judah. And when Hezekiah asks for terms, basically says, What do I have to do to get you to stop? Sennacherib demands silver and gold. And Hezekiah delivers. So urgent is the need, and so exorbitant is the price that he even strips the gold from the doors of the temple. Okay. So, the good news was he wasn't willing to bow to a foreign power. The bad news is the foreign power is now on the doorstep, and he's trying to pay them off to keep them from destroying Jerusalem. And... This large tribute is delivered to Sennacherib, and Sennacherib receives the tribute and then moves his army on Jerusalem anyway, right? Because he can, because he's a king, and because Jerusalem is in a vulnerable state. Um, His generals arrive at the city. He and Hezekiah's cabinet cabinet ministers speak on the walls. Um... The general mocks the inhabitants of the city many times, and he also attempts to undermine the people's confidence in Hezekiah. The general speaks in a language that the soldiers on the walls can hear, even though he's asked not to, because he's trying to spread panic and he's trying to show, he's trying to spread this fear among the people and show them that it's futile. And the general talks about how Yahweh will be, the the God of these people, will be no obstacle to this military machine. They're going to come right in, take over Jerusalem. But without knowing it, the general had crossed a line, we might say he'd said too much, because he had mocked Yahweh. Hearing this news, Hezekiah, so so he's just heard the intention of this army. He paid them off, it wasn't enough, they're here at the door, they're going to, they're spreading fear among his people. They're going to break into the city and destroy it. He tears his clothes. He goes into the temple. And the king inquires of the prophet Isaiah. Yes, that prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah says, quote, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard which, with, with which the servants of Assyria have reviled me. End quote. That's 2 Kings 19. So Hezekiah in his desperation, speaks to Isaiah, and Isaiah answers, Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid, because they have reviled me, and God will not be mocked, and he acts. We will see that in just a moment. Hezekiah receives this message and goes to the temple and prays. So again, we see Hezekiah seeking God in this time of trial, And Isaiah um, even prophecies that not a single arrow will be loosed on Jerusalem. So, we move on. And Sennacherib is a king with all the usual kingly trappings, including a large ego, okay? And Sennacherib, we, we, we see this in Isaiah's prophecy... Um, mocks God, and God, in an amazing way, answers him. And I'm going to read to you guys a section from Second Kings 19.
1: <clears throat>
0: this is Isaiah, and he's talk, speaking about Sennacherib, this king who has come near to Jerusalem. I'm starting in verse 23. Second Kings 19.23. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord. Remember the generals that came? And you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up against the heights of mountains to the far recess of Lebanon. I have felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypress. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. And I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. So this is what Sennacherib is saying to himself. And I think this is, it's amazing how God answers him. Verse 25. Have you not heard that, it, that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what you now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins with their inhabitants shorn of strength and dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. So this is fascinating to me because we have this righteous king Hezekiah, who's in his kingdom's in mortal danger, the enemies at the gates, the um this Syrian king Sennacherib is, is he and his generals are mocking God. And we have Isaiah, famous figure in the Old Testament, who says. Don't be afraid. And in the king's own hubris, he has this response thinking about all that he's done, all the kingdoms he's conquered, all the cities he's leveled. And God answers him in Isaiah's prophecy and says, I determined that a long time ago. It's only happening because I planned it that way. You think you're mighty and you think that, you know, but I know everything about you. And because you have raged against me, I'm going to turn you away. And then we see at the end of uh, Isaiah, excuse me, of chapter 19, the angel of the Lord that night went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose in the morning, they were all dead bodies. This is... This is the angel of the Lord. It, 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 has, it almost has a, it happens at night, okay? It, it's almost, in a, in a weird way, like the Passover, right? Like you go to bed, the danger's there, and in the night, in the quiet, the angel of the Lord appears, and 185,000 Assyrians are dead. They're not gone. They didn't pack up and leave. They're there. They're dead. The whole camp's full of corpses. And this breaks the will of Sennacherib. He promptly leaves. He departs. He heads home. And he will later be killed by his own sons while worshiping one of his false gods. This is a famous, uh, this is a famous event, rightly so. Um, literature and artwork has been um, devoted to it. Even in the secular world, this deliverance of Judah totally at the hand of God. Not an arrow was fired, just as was prophesied. So Judah lasts. They go on a little bit longer. And I'm going to omit a little bit of this just for time's sake, but you can go back and read through this account, and you can see the actions in the prayer of Hezekiah. It's amazing how he turns to God during this time. It tells a lot about him. When, when it's describing Hezekiah, it said he clings to God. Um so it's just amazing to see God's hand in deliverance. And then Hezekiah dies and right after Judah's greatest king, we have its worst, Manasseh. Manasseh will have an unusually long reign of 55 years. And during this time, uh, he will cre- he will incur the wrath of God. This wrath will ultimately destroy the kingdom, and I don't want to read through all of it. It it's kind of hard. It, it challenges description to to speak of all the things Manasseh did, but I'll try and summarize them here for you. He rebuilds the high places of pagan worship, but that's been done before. He practices as, excuse me, astral worship, stars, the moon, sun, you know, things in the sky. He bows down to them. He practices fertility worship. and He places an Asherah in God's own temple. But it doesn't stop there. He practices fortune telling with mediums and necromancers, communication with the dead. And he also burns his own son as a sacrifice. The account said he fills Jerusalem with innocent blood from one end to the other. And perhaps the best way to try and describe Manasseh is this. The evil he leads Judah in is so pernicious, so evil. It not only surpasses those kings who came before him, it surpasses the pagan people who lived in the land before the Israelites came. The land is now more evil in God's eyes, than it was before the Israelites came. It's a shocking statement. It it is. Um, They're now more vile in their conduct than even their pagan predecessors. And God, God makes a judgment on the conduct of both the king and the country. He describes his judgment. And I'll read some of it for you in 2 Kings 21. And the Lord said to his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also sin with idols, therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria, and I will plumb line the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hands of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. So that's it. It's done. Judah will be taken away, and Manasseh is, is instrumental in provoking God to this, um, and I think, I was searching, what, what could we take from this that's useful to us, right, what, what's, what's a, good, a good thing to take away from this, um, and here, here's what I've got, there is a point of no return regarding God's punishment and sin, okay? Judah right now reached that point of no return, okay? There will even be a good king that will arise after Manasseh, okay? There will be good things that still happen. But the most God will say after this point is that I will wait, I will put off, I will forestall that judgment, but it's still coming, okay? The shedding of innocent blood God does not take lightly, the killing of children, God does not take lightly. The desecration of his pla- of his house, his place of worship, God does not take lightly. And so, from this point on, Judah's fate is set. Um, so I think it's just we just need to we just need to be aware of the fact that there is a point of no return. Um, where the punishment is going to fall, and we should not toy with God because we don't know where that point is. What do I mean? Okay? I mean that even a right... We'll take um, David, a righteous king, right? He commits a terrible evil with Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. We all know the story, right? And afterwards, David is repentant, but he still is punished for that, Okay? And the punishment you know, comes, and his house is afflicted, the baby dies. He had, he had transgressed to a point where there was still, even though he was righteous, even though he was repentant, there were still real consequences that could not be averted, right? God still punished him. Um, we might say the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man had reached a point of no return, Okay? It was too late for him. He had reached the point beyond which he could not turn back from. And I just think, um, thank, thank goodness that we have a merciful and loving God who will hear our prayer and who will grant us forgiveness. But we ought not to toy with God because there is a point of no return where punishments will happen. Um, and we see Judah reaching that point here. Interestingly... 2 um, Chronicles 33 records that Manasseh was captured by the king of the Assyria and he humbled himself before God and he even worked to undo the damage that his own depravity had brought. But it was too late. It didn't change Judah's ultimate fate. Um, Manasseh has a son, Ammon, who reigns two years over Judah. He does what's evil in the sight of the Lord and is ultimately murdered by his servants. And... Um, as we move into the final phase here of uh, the end of Judah, I just want to mention the prophets. Those of you who are following along um, on, on the chart will see this is a time when the prophets are very active, okay? There are a lot of prophets writing at this time. There's a lot of... Um, we have Isaiah, we already talked about it. Jeremiah, Daniel. I mean, if you look through there, this time, the, the warnings that came for Israel, the warnings that came for Judah... And then the captivity that's coming, we just see a lot. It's a very active time for prophets, and that's very interesting if you're looking to tie in some of your Old Testament reading to the narrative. Um, So we we get past Manasseh, we get past Ammon, we have Josiah. Josiah is the last good king of Judah. Um, He's trying to repair the temple. The high priest finds a copy of the book of the law, many many commentators seem to think it was uh, Deuteronomy the book is read before this king Josiah and he tears his clothes in mourning and he understands how the disobedience of his people and of his predecessors have brought on God's wrath and he seeks God and God answers him in two parts first the judgment of God will most certainly fall on Judah so again we've reached that point of no return Judah is going to be judged and second, and this is interesting to me, because of the repentance of jo- Josiah, the wrath will be forestalled. It will not occur during his reign. God says, because you were righteous, because you tried to turn back to me, because you um, were faithful to me, it will not happen when you're alive. I will, I will, my judgment will not fall while you are here. Josiah restores the temple, celebrates the Passover. He reads the law before the people. So he is truly a a last bright spark in the increasingly dark place of Judah. Um, He's later killed at the Battle of Megiddo fighting the Egyptians. And here's the point. um, We we kind of reached this point in the, um, the northern kingdom where the last several kings came very quickly, right? Short reigns. They were ineffective. They were foolish. They were wicked. Boom, 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 the end. Seems to be a sign of the end, and we see the same thing now in Judah. We see um, the next king reigns only three months for the Pharaoh Necho from Egypt, captures him, puts him in chains, takes him away to Egypt where he'll die. And then the Pharaoh actually pra- places <clears throat> the next king on Judah's throne, who also does evil. And now we see the conditions are right for the end. And we see a new player on the scene, the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. This is a name you'll hear a lot. Babylon uh, Babylon was the new rising power. And Nebuchadnezzar approaches. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah at the time, becomes his servant for three years. And then, one could argue foolishly, rebels. Nebuchadnezzar's army comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. He later joins in person. And uh, Jehoiakim, who is Jehoiachin's son, surrenders the city. So now it's over. The Babylonians are in the city. Nebuchadnezzar takes um, the king and his palace officials' prisoner, carries away all the treasures of the temple, he carries away the soldiers, the craftsmen, the smiths, all the skilled people, all the mighty people are taken away. This weakens, weakens greatly the city. And um, he sets up sort of a puppet regime and makes Zedekiah, who is Jehoiakim's uncle, king over what's left of Jerusalem. And uh, Zedekiah reigns for 11 years over the, what's left He also does evil and foolishness. And he rebels against Babylon. Yes, the same Babylon that put him on the throne. And this time, it's pretty clear that Nebuchadnezzar has had it. No half measures. He returns with his army and levels the city. He destroys the temple, he destroys the king's palace with fire, then carries away almost all the remaining inhabitants into exile. Almost everyone's gone. I went to Babylon. And for Zedekiah, a special punishment. Remember, I made you king over what's left. I'm now going to unmake you as king. They kill Zedekiah's sons in front of him and then remove his eyes so that the last picture of this life Zedekiah gets to get is the picture of his children being taken from him and killed. And the remaining inhabitants of Judah are carried away into Babylon. And but for a very loving and merciful God, this is where the story of Judah would end. But Judah does not end the same way that Israel does. There is going to be a captivity, and then there's going to be a return and a rebuilding. And we will talk about that more next week. In the meantime, I know this is kind of heavy, but... I put in something that I thought would make you laugh. I'm not even joking here, okay? Truly, you guys have been great to get through all these kings, through the destruction. It's hard watching something slowly be taken away. It's very tragic. But um, back in 2 Kings 17, remember Assyria in the northern kingdom? And remember how Assyria took away the northern kingdom? They begin to resettle Samaria. Okay, I mean, you have this, this land and we've crushed this people and taken them away and the land's not productive anymore. We need to get some people in there. So they begin to resettle the area. And I'm going to read to you from 2 Kings. So this is what's happening in Samaria up in the north while this is going on, well, slightly before some of this is going on in the south. And this is relevant to the New Testament, right? Because we hear about the, the good Samaritan, right? We need to know this sets up the dynamic between the south and like the north. And I'll read you guys here from Second Kings seventeen twenty four. And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, Sephravim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. People of Israel are gone. We're now settling these people. And they took people and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. This is wild. So now we have this in the north where the Israel used to be. We have this carnival of pagan religions, this melting pot, sort of evil melting pot, and, and all these people that they're bringing back in. And at first they don't fear God, so God sends lions, which start eating some of them. Well, this is like something a horror movie is made out of. What happened to my neighbor? Oh, lion ate him. Where's your kid? Lion got him. What about this guy? Lion ate him too. Seems to be a lot of lions running around eating people right now. This is unusual. But this is what's this is what's really amazing. These new settlers, who remember, for the most part are not Israelites. They realize they have angered the Israelite God. Here, let me read the text for you. Um, Verse 26, same chapter. So the king of Assyria was told, remember he's working to resettle this area, the nations you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them and behold, they are killing them because they do not know the law of the God of the land. So even these pagan peoples have it figured out. The God here is unhappy with us. We don't know him and we don't know how to make this stop. We are tired of people being eaten by lions. What do we do? Then the king of Assyria, I'll go back and read, here's the answer. The king of Assyria commanded, send there one of the priests whom you carried away from there and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So one of the priests whom he had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Well, hey, sometimes you have a problem and you just need a practical solution. What we need, one of those priests you deported, if you could just get one of those and send them back and kind of teach us what we have to do to get right with God so he will quit sending lions to eat people, could you please do that? And sure enough, they dig up one of the old Israelite priests and send him down, and he settles, and he instructs the people. Now, we talked a lot about the northern kingdom's priests, okay? Not a great group, and at one point they become a very... Inclusive group, remember we talked about anybody who wants to could become a priest up there. So it wasn't great, but apparently it was just good enough that the lions quit eating people. But what we end up with in Samaria is this weird amalgamation of the pagan worship that was coming in from all these people that were resettling the land, and also some teaching from an Israelite, you know, the, the Israelite tradition, the priest, the, the God of the Yahweh tradition, we might say. So, again, we have this sort of a weird mixture of all these things going on up in the north. But that will become important because, again, in the New Testament, Samaria and Samaritans are mentioned frequently. So I just want you guys to have some background about what was going on up there. And I thought you guys would find it hilarious that even the pagan people who had nothing, had not the law of Moses, had not the tradition, had not the temple, had not the priest. Even they could figure out that they had angered the God of this land, whoever he is, and we got to figure out a way to get right with him. And in some ways, their seeking to please the God of Israel was more righteous at times than Israel itself. And that's kind of funny. Sad, tragic, but kind of funny. So, um, anyway... We talked. uh, I cut some stuff out here just for time. I left a few minutes for questions here or thoughts because we will finish with the Israel and the Old Testament next week. We will do the Babylonian captivity, and we will do the return. And then um, after that, we'll be done. I know some of you had expressed interest in the intertestamental period um, about what happened between the close of the Old Testament and Christ walking on earth. We're not going to do that as an ABF because... All of my sources would be outside Scripture, so I don't think it technically qualifies as an ABF. But I will put together a short little study guide where we'll talk about the influence of Rome, the Maccabees, the Herodian dynasty, and if you want, I could pass out those, and you could just have it for your own personal study. But we won't, we won't dedicate a Sunday to that, though. So I think we have one week left, guys. Thoughts, um, thoughts from today? I'm glad the last week gets to be a happier tone than the last two weeks. This is kind of rough to get through, um, but um, we still we see God's judgment. We see God's righteousness. We see the the the, the different kings and their differing levels of faithfulness or evil. Um, yeah, what do you guys think? Questions, thoughts, comments, typos. I know there's a lot of typos. Got to be typos. Hopefully, hopefully, no more uh, rehabs in there. But any thoughts? Application to the New Testament Church. We are supposed to learn from this after all.
1: Well, when we were talking about your application question on the top of page 75 uh, about Hezekiah, um, and uh, I thought it was real interesting what you told us about the pagans have their own choices and they do what they want to do, not what God wants them to do. And what I had thought about for that question kind of fits with today's sermon. In other words, pagan worship's immediate results. And what we need to do, or they needed to do, was remember what God had done for them. And um, and we're called to follow God. And we, it's not as, it has to be intentional. We have to intentionally turn to God and remember what he's done for us and give gratitude and thanks and praise otherwise we get busy with the laundry or whatever we're doing and uh, what happens to us happened in Jerusalem in Judea and Judah I mean and Israel and all that stuff
0: yes I agree that's 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 the way when, when you serve when when you serve a and a a deity who is outside yourself, you know, there's objective truth that that has to be learned. You have to, you have to learn and serve this God. You're not free to just make up whatever you want it to be. Um, it is your job to find that truth and to worship that God. So I, I agree, and you can get busy with all kinds of other stuff. In a way, paganism is more convenient, we might say, right? Because it'll work on my time the way I want it to um, as far as it's, easy, right? If, if I'm not really so big on this deity, but I'm really big on this deity, you know, I'll just worship over here. And, um, and there's also an aspect of control to it. I wasn't going to read this, but I will read just a little bit more from this commentary for you. Um, I, I think this ties in well with what you were going to say. Now, step back from this pile of paganism and note the common virus that infects it all. It's about control. Infertility worship— I use my practice of intercourse to manipulate or encourage the heavenly powers to act in the same way and grant fertility. In astral worship, I seek out omens that are indicators of future events. Likewise, in spiritism, I want the secret knowledge that will enlighten me on how to act or react in view of what is coming. By sacrificing a child, I show how dead earnest I am. What an extreme price I am willing to pay, and so should be able to purchase the favor I desire." Paganism is a way I manage my life over against the various powers that may determine it. Paganism is light years away from biblical religion with its sovereign God who walks before and beside me in both green pastures and in dark alleys all the way to my final residence. So I I think that ties in with what you were saying. Um, I, I think that it's so weird we see the paganism thing keep popping up it still pops up today. Far from it. We are, we are not rid of paganism in our culture. It may take different forms, but all the same temptations, I think, are there, and we ought guard our hearts just the same. Other thoughts? Next week has a happy ending. So hang in there, guys. We're almost done. I appreciate you guys sticking through these last two weeks. Great. Have a good week. Thank you. <laughs> He's just laughing at me because I can't work a, an ear thing.